Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, intrigue and high drama at the state capitol this week as Central Coast Democrat Robert Rivas thought he had the votes lined up to be the next speaker, only to be told not so fast, Assemblyman. Yeah, that's right. Turns out the current occupant of the job, Anthony Rendon, isn't quite ready to step aside yet. And uh, he got the backing of his Democratic caucus to remain speaker, at least for now. We're going to talk with one of the reporters who waited six hours while Democrats caucus behind closed doors to hash out their differences. And in a little bit, a few days from the election, we're going to look at some of the most interesting and competitive congressional races in California. But first, we're going to be joined by one of the stars of the Sacramento Press Corps, Alexi Kosif, who covers state government for Cal Matters and has been asking a lot of hard questions lately. Alexi, welcome to The Breakdown. Hey, Alexi. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So, okay. Robert Rivas, probably not a household name to most folks. This is a guy who represents a rural Central Coast district, including a southern tip of Silicon Valley uh, in in Santa Clara County. He basically came out with a press release last Friday saying, I got the votes, guys, I can take over. Uh, The current speaker is not termed out for a couple years. Uh, Why do you think he made that announcement when he did, I guess, to start? Yeah, well, so normally... When you have the votes to become the next speaker, you know, from a majority of the Democratic caucus, you you might go into the speaker's office and sort of show your cards and try and negotiate a handover of power. But Anthony Rendon, the current speaker, was not ready to do that. And so that sort of forced Robert Rivas's hand and he tried to go public, essentially, to get the momentum behind him and shift the conversation. And ultimately it, that wasn't quite enough to get the, the ball rolling in, in his corner. Yeah, exactly. So there was this uh, series of motions on the floor of the assembly on Tuesday. They ended up caucusing. First of all, if I don't know if this is really in the weeds a little bit, but we saw Eloise Reyes make a motion to, 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 to adjourn in caucus that failed. And then uh, Buffy Wicks from uh, the East Bay did it and they succeeded. Like what was going on there? Like, you know, for people who don't pay close attention or even some of God us who love do. You. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is significant in the sense that it laid bare just how divided the caucus was in this moment. You know, it shouldn't have been such a controversial thing to go to caucus if they were going to go in there and have a quick discussion and take a vote and move on. But there was this sort of power struggle happening on the floor of people who wanted to caucus now or caucus later. 
and all these votes started happening and you could kind of see from who was voting yes or no on each one where people's allegiances were falling with Robert. Uh, with Robert Rivas or with Anthony Rendon. So it was actually this very interesting, useful political exercise that that laid out kind of where everybody stood. It took like over 15 minutes for them to work through all of these motions <laughs> just to go into the caucus, just to have this discussion. It's like therapy. And so uh, talk to about the fault lines here, though, because it seems that this is a little bit more about personality than policy, right? I mean, this is a supermajority Democratic caucus and... There's always been, I mean, there's always dissatisfaction with any speaker, right? But like where, why now, why this guy taking on Rendon and and who, if we can make any sort of distinction around policy or politics, like who's lining up on which side? Yeah, I mean, that is a very good point. I think something that a lot of people have said is that there's not really a huge difference between these two men. They are both fairly you know, liberal members of the Democratic caucus. And so you could assume they would probably govern the caucus in a similar ideological sense. But there are these personality clashes that always happen in the Capitol, and those have certainly contributed to what we're seeing here. Um, There's frustration from certain members over how Anthony Rendon handled the pandemic, And that has been brewing now for several years. There is frustration from some members over how he's handled uh, rising gas prices and inflation and the democratic response to that. I mean, it's all kinds of issues that are sort of coming together at once. And so you have some of the most moderate members and some of the most progressive members unified in this weird coalition to try and vote him out. Uh, You know, the reason it might be sort of coming now is because you'll see more momentum building um, in at the end of any speaker's time in office. And Anthony Rendon is coming up on his last term in the legislature. So no matter what, people are going to be trying to whip votes and get support to succeed him because he's not going to be here after 2024. And, and so you're really seeing that start to build. So talk about the that six-hour wait. Uh, you and Jeremy uh, White from Politico, and maybe there was an AP reporter there, you know, tweeting away with not much news. <laughs> there was, at one point, a pineapple was delivered, and there was a yeah, lot of Yeah, what discussion. was up with the so pineapple? Like, what was, yeah, what was up with the delivery of the pineapple? Well, people get <laughs> hungry after six that's hours. That's what I, I thought, mean, but come on. Pineapple? For all those okay, people. whatever. Somebody's uh, on some weird diet. Yeah, I don't know. But no, uh, what was going on in the hallway? Uh, you know, people were coming and going. At one point, I think Rivas's one of his his spokesmen or some staffer sprinted up with a, a what looked like a speech. You know, describe what went on in those six hours. That's a lot of time. How glamorous your job was. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it is one of the more unusual stakeouts I would say I've had at the Capitol just because it kept going and going and, and then it didn't really seem to end up anywhere. Uh, but yeah, there were uh, quite a few reporters all kind of there trying to figure out. It dwindled out what though. It dwindled. Uh, th- there would the door would open and lawmakers would come out and we'd think something was going to happen and they were just going, you know, on a bathroom break or something like that. But really, you know, what was significant was what was happening behind closed doors. And you know, both sides have sort of been spinning it in the days since. But as best we can tell, there was a very, you know kind of emotional discussion, a lot of people weighing in about this idea that even though Robert Rivas had the support of a lot of the caucus to be the next speaker, not all those people actually wanted him to take over immediately. And so Anthony Rendon was really able to flex his power 
and keep uh, prevent a vote that would have pushed him out and and get this sort of weird truce where he's going to stay the speaker through at least the end of the session. And a lot of his supporters really say that, you know, this has weakened Rivas to the point where, you know, um, it's not really clear if and when and how there was no formal transition announced. So Anthony Rendon, when they come back in the next session and he's going to try and be speaker again and keep being speaker and, and this whole thing might kind of start over. Well, right. I'm wondering, I mean, you know, Rendon is known as sort of somebody who leads from behind. He lets a lot of his, you know, committee chairs uh, really take take the lead on pieces of legislation, kind of making calls. And clearly that has built him some loyalty among some members. But this isn't the first time someone's tried to take him out. Evan Lowe, who is supporting Rivas's bid, uh, also has been part of that. There's always been, t- you know, talk about Buffy Wicks being interested in that job. Um are they now going to look at Rebus and go, well, he's weak? I mean, could this set up a sort of even more complicated leadership fight in the new year? That remains to be seen. I mean, certainly, you know, Rebus came out and tried to declare victory in the fact that there was an acknowledgement that he had a support of the majority of the caucus to be the next speaker. What's very strange, you know, is that we're a few months away from an election in which a disproportionately high number of new members are going to be coming in. Like a dozen Um, or more, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's going to really shift the makeup of the caucus. There could be some jockeying for the support of those new members that could change the dynamic of who has support. And of course, probably Anthony Rendon now seeing how these challenges to his speakership are, are gaining Uh, momentum will also be working behind the scenes to try and figure out who he wants to succeed him. Right. So there's going to be a lot of other dynamics happening, certainly in the months ahead. And and Rivas was not like somebody that was well known. We said that at the beginning, not a not a household name, uh, at least maybe in his household. But uh, so, uh, you know, what is it about him that, you know, got so many Democrats to rally around him? And is there a NorCal SoCal split there? Like. You know, no, I mean, no, one of the things that that we should say is, you know, a lot a lot of times historically there's been talk about L.A. versus San Francisco as sort of this rivalry that really drives uh, California politics. So they settled on the central coast. We've seen that sort of collapse in the in, you know, in recent years. I mean, the the leader of the state Senate is from San Diego. And uh, and so, you know, th- th- those kinds of dynamics aren't aren't quite the way they used to be. I mean, this is really more sort of a um, a personality clash almost where there's, you know, a lot of frustrated sort of moderate members who don't like um, some of the ideological choices that Rendon have made, teaming up with a lot of progressive members who are, are frustrated about how he's handled some of their bills. I mean, it, it, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily this, this logical thing. Um, you know, the first step toward being the next speaker is wanting it, right? So it's somebody who has a desire. That doesn't narrow it down by much. For, for power, right? To yeah. start going out and Wait, and lawmakers have a desire for power? That's shocking. We were joking earlier that like Willie Brown would never have let any of this or happen. Pelosi, <laughs> or Pelosi, matter. right? No, no. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, uh, but, you know, he, uh, you have to go out and try and, and win your, your colleagues over, right? And and some of that is is starts with just personal relationships and and people see who might be, you know, more amenable to others and they'll start to sort of 
unify with them and, and help them along because they know that if they're in tight with the next speaker, that means That's more power point. for them right. too, right? Um, as you said, Evan Lowe, he mounted his own challenge uh, last year that was really seen as this sort of challenge from a more moderate wing of the party um, to try and sort of reshape the uh, kind of the power dynamics right. of, of the assembly and that failed. Um, he got chopped off at the socks. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, but he, yeah. but he backed, you know, Rivas because that could have then meant still a little bit of it kind of clawing his way back to some more power after having it taken away from him as punishment. Right? Maybe a committee ship or two. Um, right. Before we let you go, Alexi, I do want to just check in on the governor's race. Um, yeah. You know, Newsom beat back that recall last year. Uh, no thanks to you and your French laundry story, we'll note. <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't see any big name challengers in this race. Republican State Senator Brian Dolly is probably the most well-known, although, again, not super well-known. Uh, Michael Schellenberger is making a run as a declined state candidate. Do you see any weakness for this governor going into the fall? And, like, is there even a path for any of these challengers? I mean, at this moment, it really looks like no. Um, they haven't been able to raise significant amounts of money. They don't have significant name ID. And we're still an overwhelmingly Democratic state where all public polling shows that people are pretty happy with the, go the job the governor has done, despite being very dissatisfied with a lot of issues in the state. So the reality is this is not looking like a serious race. Now, if for some reason there is, you know, this bubbling dissatisfaction and the governor ends up with less than 50% of the vote in, in the June primary next week, something that seems very unlikely, but that would maybe signal kind of an unexpected, uncaptured, you know, uh, feeling of uh, vulnerability that maybe a candidate could try and capitalize on and change the trajectory. But in all likelihood, Governor Newsom is, is cruising to a second term. Yeah, well, it certainly looks that way. Hey, before we let you go, have you ever eaten at the French Laundry, either before or after your story broke? <laughs> I never have. I, you know, I, I would love to. If somebody knows how to get me a reservation, I certainly think it would be a yeah, good figure out a way to pay for it also. <laughs> well, we should say, I mean, because of that recall, the GOP kind of put all their eggs in a basket and they they're not really running a candidate. I mean, as a party. Right. So, yeah, he's, uh, and if he's yeah, Dolly has no money. Absolutely. I mean, Governor Newsom, he, uh, he won the, the recall last year with about the same margin as he won his original term in 2018. It was a huge show of force and support of the people of California remaining behind him. And that scared away pretty much anyone who might have even been seen as a major candidate to challenge Newsom or a moderate candidate. So now we're left with a lot of minor candidates and um, it doesn't seem to be much of a race. All right, Alexi Casa from Cal Matters. Thank you so much. Thanks for your great Thank reporting you. and all your work up there. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, before we go to a break, little reminder, Marisa and I are gonna be back on the airwaves next Tuesday night with election results and analysis starting at eight o'clock. Join us if you would. And when we come back, we're going to talk with LA Times reporter Melanie Mason about some of the hottest congressional races on Tuesday's ballot. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And now we're joined by one of our favorite reporters, Melanie Mason, national political correspondent with the L.A. Times, to check in on some of the most competitive congressional races in California. Mel, welcome to Political Breakdown. Well, you just made me blush. Thank Aww. you so much. Well, we're good. We try. We're we so try. happy to have you. Well, let's let's start in the Central Valley, shall we? Uh, the congressional district that David Valadeo now holds, he won that seat. It flipped it back to Republicans in 2020, beating Democrat T.J. Cox. Now we've got Rudy Salas, longtime assemblyman from the area. Give us a sense of the dynamic of that race. Sure. So we've been used to seeing that race as a major battleground, as you said, cycle after cycle now mostly because David Valadeo is sitting in a seat that really should be, by registration standards, a seat that a Democrat occupies. There's a gigantic Democratic registration uh, advantage there. Uh, but what's different about this year, as opposed to years past, is that it's not just a red team, blue team battle this time around. In fact, for me, the most interesting dynamic was some of the opposition that uh, Congressman Valadeo was getting from the right. And this is, of course, because he was one of 10 Republican uh, congressman who voted to impeach Donald Trump. So he was part of this very select group that got a lot of backlash from the base once they made that vote. But he made that vote. And yet Trump has not come out to endorse any of his opponents. He's still getting a ton of money from Kevin McCarthy, the uh, heir apparent for the Republicans to become speaker if they win. What do you think the party and maybe then even like Republicans on the ground are weighing here when they look at him, given the registration numbers you laid out and that, I mean, this is largely considered one of the most competitive races in the nation? Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of political pragmatism that's in, coming into play here, because I think that if you are looking just at the numbers and the fact that these races have been so tight before, the idea that you would get somebody even further to the right from Congressman Valadeo, who has really sort of carved out this somewhat moderate, independent path. I think it's very unlikely that the Democrats in that district uh, would cross over to vote for him. And so you see people like uh, uh, Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy really getting behind this candidacy, uh, really uh, fundraising for him, giving him money, endorsing him. And I think that the sense is that probably getting former President Trump to lay off on endorsing one of his opponents. I think it's worth noting that Valadeo is the only one of the 10, especially those who are still running uh, for re-election this year, 
where Trump has not endorsed their opponent. Hmm. So he really does stand out from the pack there. And as you said, this is a district with a pretty good uh, Democratic registration advantage. A lot of those are Latino voters who are not the same kind of Latino voters as, say, in L.A. or San Francisco. What difference does that make in a race like this, especially when you've got Rudy Salas, who's well known down there, uh, yeah, running? Yeah, I should say. Assembly member. Assembly member, Democrat, long time. Yeah. He's from there, grew up there. He's well known. Right. And, and he's uh, well known to us from our days of covering the state legislature because he was some he was one of the leaders for a time of what we call the mods. Right. Which are centrist Democrats. And I think in some way that talks a lot about the political dynamics in that district, because, you know, all Democrats aren't the same. And a Democrat from the west side of L.A. or San Francisco be, uh, can vote or behave pretty differently than a Democrat in the Central Valley. And I think that Salas sort of personifies this what used to be called a valley crat approach. Right. Which is you uh, are aligned with the Democratic party in most cases, but on things like water, on things like maybe voting against certain environmental regulations, um, you're going to maybe veer more to the right because you're reflecting more of the conservative leaning uh, populace there. I think also the one other thing to note is, you know, Latinos, there tends to be an assumption because they have sided with Democrats in the past, that that means that that's an advantage for Democrats. But we did see in 2020, there was a creep, not a wave, but a creep of Latino voters moving towards the right. And so I do think that that's another reason that this district, even though it looks like a slam dunk for Democrats, is going to be a lot more competitive. All right. So that's the Central Valley. I think that's 22 congressional district. Let's move down to Orange County, where you had a really interesting story recently about um uh, the Michelle Steele and Jay Chen race, um, or sorry, the Young Kim uh, race, who Young Kim is, um, I think, really seen as a strong candidate in Orange County, but she has been sort of redistricted into a more conservative uh, Republican district than where she was before. And, you know, she's really seems to be worried about a challenge from the right here, which was kind of unexpected. Tell us about that story you just did. It was totally unexpected. I will say as a political reporter, I expected it probably least of all. In fact, I think I was t- the, the reason we started reporting on this is I was talking to somebody in that area and said, OK, well, we probably know what the matchup will look like uh, heading into the general election there. And, and this person said, oh, I'm not so sure, uh, because this person had noticed that all of a sudden uh, Congresswoman Kim had started sending out text messages and then flyers and then television advertising against her opponent, Greg Rath. And if you're wondering who Greg Rath is, so is most of the state in the country right now, because he's not a particularly well-known candidate, at least outside of his district. And I think that you you touched on redistricting. That's been really key. This is, uh, yes, she is the incumbent, but because of redistricting, she is uh, only has about 20% of her current voters right now. So she has to introduce herself to a whole lot of voters. Meanwhile, Greg Rass, he's a, a councilman from Mission Viejo, which is the largest city in the new district. He's been on the ballot a bunch of times because he's run for Congress multiple times. So he's a pretty known quantity there. So even though she should have the advantages of the incumbency, and she does, especially when it comes to money and institutional support, uh, when it comes to name ID, uh, she is playing catch up. And you can see that in these last days of the campaign. She's spending a ton of money, far more than I think we all anticipated she would in a primary. And in, in addition to you know TV ads and that sort of thing, is she at all you know modifying her message to appeal to some of these more conservative voters? And what could that mean for the general election if she does make it into the top two? I think that's absolutely right. I think that what we are seeing is that uh, the district not only is is new to her, but the composition of the district has changed a lot. In some case, in some sense, because it's much less diverse. Her previous district was sort of evenly divided between Latinos, Asian Americans, uh, and white voters. And now she's in a majority, almost overwhelmingly white district, and it's a more conservative district. And you can see that in her messaging. 
since I have known Congresswoman Kim Beck when she was running for assembly, she was always somebody who was trying to carve out, much like David Valadeo, this middle path. She was going to try and distance herself from Trump, talk about uh, you know immigration in terms of being very open to immigrants. And now we're seeing much more harder right uh, rhetoric. She's actually accusing her opponent, Greg Rass, who is to her right, of being a liberal. That's the way that she's attacking <laughs> him in this primary. And I think that that's a reflection of the voters that she is trying to win over. It's a more conservative group of Republicans and her messaging is adjusted accordingly. So what does that mean for the fall? Asif uh, Mahmoud, a physician born in Pakistan, is running on the Democratic side. Um, Do you think this will be a Republican-Democratic matchup? Well, I think it's likely to be a Republican-Democratic matchup no matter what, because I think that the general consensus, and Lord knows the predictions, you know, what what are they worth these days? But to to, to make one anyway, um, I think that there's generally a sense that it's likely that since all the Democrats in the district will coalesce, that uh, Dr. Mahmoud will make it into the primary. And then the question is, is which Republican, since there's a fracturing of the Republican votes. Um, Now, if it is as what is most likely to happen, which is Congresswoman Kim with her advantages, with all the money that she's spending, then I think that the perception is that this is still a fairly safe Republican district because of the Republican lean and because she has managed to sort of hit that balance. If, if she's been able to win over the conservative base in this primary, she'll still probably get some crossovers and independence in the in November, and she would likely be in a good position. If it's rats, I think things get interesting. Yeah, well, let's move a little south to the 45th Congressional District in Orange County. Um, Michelle Steele, a Republican, took that seat back from the Democrats two years ago. Now we've got Jay Chen, uh, who's a veteran. He is the son of Taiwanese immigrants running against Steele, who is herself a, a Korea, South Korean immigrant. What uh, Talk about the dynamic there, two Asians voting in a district that was, you know, meant to consolidate uh, the Asian communities. Uh, it's gotten pretty gnarly pretty quickly, uh, in part because there's a lot of, I think, um, the, the the back and forth has become pretty personal, uh, in part because Jay Chen was um, slammed for making comments that appeared to perhaps be making fun of the way that Congresswoman Beals Congresswoman Steele's talks. And there was back and forth about whether that was what his intention was or not. But I think to, to sort of pull back and the macro point is, is that these two are primed for a, a matchup in November. They started very early because of some some sort of personal circumstances that they were able to jump on. And so I think that if you're living in the 45th district, this is going to be a through line that you're, you have heard basically from March all the way through November. It's, it's likely to continue. And we should mention we've had Michelle Steele um, and Congressman Young Kim both on the show last year. So if you want to check out those, I think, yeah, comparing how, how folks are positioning themselves in an election year to a non-one is interesting. And that leads us to the final swing district we want to hit on, which is suburban Los Angeles County, Mike Garcia versus Christy Smith. Uh, this could be a, a rematch of, of a race that was decided by like 333 votes, I think, a couple of years ago. Um And we've seen Garcia, I mean, really go to the right, right, just backing Trump on everything, voting against impeachment, uh, co-sponsoring legislation to ban all abortions. How is that playing in this, you know, pretty coastal district with some suburban, exurban vibes in it? Right. I mean, this was a district that was um, you know, pretty solidly Republican and much like what we've seen um, just in the changing demographics of the suburbs and exurbs. Generally, it had been sort of moving uh, to the left. And then because of redistricting, it, it scooped up a lot more of Los Angeles County. And now the registration numbers really favor the Democrat. And so I found it fascinating that uh, that given that Congressman uh, Garcia still chose to to sort of align himself with Trump the way he did, in some ways, I think that he can figure that's how he won election 
uh, the first time, technically first two times, because he also beat Christy Smith. Right, my uh, bad. This is a special third, election. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a yeah triple throwdown, I guess. Um, but I, I think that he is now running a district that is even more liberal. So I think that I am waiting to see as we move into the general, what his messaging is to these independent voters, to these potential crossover voters. And if Christy Smith, if she makes it into the the, uh, general, how she can convince voters who chose not to vote for her twice Okay, maybe we'll give her another look. Right, because <laughs> there's to, another Dem, right? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, there exactly. is another Democrat in the race. And like Garcia, he is a veteran. John uh, Corty, I think his name is, a retired Navy intelligence officer, says he was motivated to jump in because of the insurrection on January 6th. Um, is he, do you have a sense, has there been any polling down there? Do you sense, is he eating into Christy Smith's numbers? You know, I can't speak to polling. I always figure with uh, primary congressional polling anyway, it should have like six asterisks attached (laughs) to it because it's just you're talking about, quite frankly, a a voting populace. It's not super engaged right now. Um, So but I will say when it comes in terms of buzz, his name had been sort of coming out there quite a bit, I think partially because uh, Christy Smith has whether this is fair or not, she has now branded the sense of she wasn't able to pull this out, even in a very close race twice now. And it's hard to sort of get that best stink off of you. And so I think that Democrats in that area who see a potential winnable district were maybe trying to see if there was another option out there. But, you know, Christy Smith is the assemblywoman of that area. She because she has run before, she is known before. So she is still starting with that advantage. Uh, but it is interesting to see that within the Democrats, there was there was some shopping around. All right. So we've covered four potential swing districts. Um, you know, nationally, there's a sense that there's a lot of momentum on the Republican side. Although, to your point, who knows what will be the issues come November because abortion and inflation and Guns. crime and all that. How do we feel that California is sort of fitting into this national landscape? I think that what interests me about California is that it, in some ways it distinguishes itself from the other states because everywhere across the country, the general consensus is, is that this is poised to be a pretty brutal year for Democrats for all the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, but I think that in California, not that it's much better for Democrats, but it is the rare place where there's a lot of more pickup opportunities for Dems and, re- and Republicans find themselves on defense defending incumbents. Now, they still have the wind at their back when it comes to some of these issues, but it's just a slightly different dynamic. And that's sort of what sets us apart from the rest and we of the could, country. And, and these are important because that could make the difference between who controls the House. And we'll find out more on Tuesday night and a lot more in November. Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati and our engineer is Jim Bennett. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure you vote. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today.
You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 